With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I'm trying to free your mind, Neo. But I can only show you the door. You're the one that has to walk through it. Welcome everyone to the Origins Podcast. This is your host Paul and this is episode 158. This episode is entitled The Moon Might Be Littered With Fossils From Ancient Earth. On August 2nd, 1964, the US destroyer Maddox exchanged shots with North Vietnamese torpedo boats in the Gulf of Tonkin. Two days later, the Maddox and another destroyer reported once again coming under fire. Although most historians, including those employed by the US military, have since concluded that the second of those attacks never actually occurred, It served as the pretext for an immediate ramp-up of the Vietnam War. By the end of the day, President Lyndon B. Johnson had ordered retaliatory airstrikes and by late 1965, some 180,000 American troops were on the ground, with more on the way. From the www.history.com website, an article by Jesse Greenspan, The Gulf of Tonkin Incident, 50 years ago. After World War II, France reoccupied its former colonies in Southeast Asia, only to be kicked out again by the forces of the communist leader Ho Chi Minh. In 1954, as the conflict wound down, the world's powers reached an agreement to temporarily divide Vietnam into two, with all Ho supporters going north and all French supporters going south. Elections were supposed to reunite the country within a couple of years, but the United States opposed them over concerns that Ho would win the presidency. Instead, it propped up the corrupt and authoritarian government of Ngo Dinh Diem. 
South Vietnam was essentially the creation of the United States, the Defence Department would later admit in the Pentagon Papers. Within a few years, a rebellion had sprung up against Diem, aided by Ho's forces in the north, who oversaw a string of assassinations against non-communist village leaders. Under Presidents Harry S. Truman, Dwight D. Eisenhower, John F. Kennedy and Lyndon B. Johnson, the United States gave France, and then South Vietnam, economic aid and weapons with which to fight the communist rebels. It also sent over more and more military advisers, some of whom participated in raids despite ostensibly being there only for self-defence. As part of one such covert operation, the United States trained and directed South Vietnamese sailors to bombard radar stations, bridges and other targets along the North Vietnamese coast. Meanwhile, US warships such as the Maddox conducted electronic espionage missions in order to relay intelligence to South Vietnam. The rebels continued gaining ground, however, both before and after US officials sanctioned a coup in which Dien was murdered. At this point, US involvement in Vietnam remained largely in the background. But in the pre-dawn hours of July 31, 1964, US-backed patrol boats shelled two North Vietnamese islands in the Gulf of Tonkin, after which the Maddox headed to the area. As it cruised along on August 2, it found itself facing down three Soviet-built North Vietnamese torpedo boats that had come out to chase it away. The Maddox fired first, issuing what the US authorities described as warning shots. Undeterred, the three boats continued approaching and opened up with machine gun fire and torpedo fire of their own. With the help of F-8 Crusader jets dispatched from a nearby aircraft carrier, the Maddox badly damaged at least one of the North Vietnamese boats while emerging completely unscathed, except for a single bullet that lodged in its superstructure. The following day, the US destroyer Turner Joy was sent to reinforce the Maddox and US-backed raids took place against two additional North Vietnamese defence positions. Then on August 4, the Maddox and Turner Joy reported that they had been ambushed with enemy boats firing 22 torpedoes at them. In response, President Johnson ordered airstrikes against North Vietnamese boat bases and an oil storage depot. Aggression by terror against the peaceful villages of South Vietnam has now been joined by open aggression on the high seas against the United States of America, he said that evening in a televised address. He also requested a congressional resolution known as the Gulf of Tonkin Resolution, which on August 7 passed unanimously in the House and with only two dissenting votes in the Senate, essentially giving him the power to wage war in Southeast Asia as he saw fit. Throughout these hectic few days, the Johnson administration asserted that the destroyers had been on routine patrol in international waters. In actuality, however, the destroyers were on an espionage mission in waters claimed by North Vietnam. The Johnson administration also described the two attacks as unprovoked. It never disclosed the covert US-backed raids taking place. Another problem, the second attack almost certainly never occurred. 
Instead, it's believed that the crew members of the Maddox mistook their own sonar's pings off the rudder for North Vietnamese torpedoes. In the confusion, the Maddox nearly even fired at the Turner Joy. Yet, when US intelligence officials presented the evidence to policymakers, they deliberately omitted most of the relevant communications intercepts, according to the National Security Agency documents declassified in 2005. The overwhelming body of reports, if used, would have told a story that no attack had happened, an NSA historian wrote. So a conscious effort ensued to demonstrate that an attack occurred. The Navy likewise said it is now clear that North Vietnamese naval forces did not attack Maddox and Turner Joy that night. In private, Johnson himself expressed doubts about the Gulf of Tonkin incident, reportedly telling a State Department official that those dumb stupid sailors were just shooting at flying fish. He also questioned the idea of being in Vietnam at all. A man can fight if he can see daylight down the road somewhere, he told a senator in March 1965. But there ain't no daylight in Vietnam, there's not a bit. Yet even as he said that, he was committing the first ground combat units and initiating a massive bombing campaign. The United States would not withdraw from Vietnam until 1973, by which time a disillusioned Congress had voted to repeal the same Gulf of Tonkin resolution it had so overwhelmingly supported just a few years earlier. To continue with our military theme, from the gizmodo.com website, a story by Robert Sorokanich. The supersonic Nazi rocket concept designed to bomb any city in one hour. And if you visit the show notes at www.origins.info and click on the link to this article in episode 158 of the Origins podcast, there is a short video and a drawing to go with it. When World War II ended, American engineers examined a trove of Nazi concepts for rocket-powered weapons and airplanes. One of the most terrifying was Eugen Sanger's antipodal bomber, a manned supersonic plane designed to reach any city on Earth in one hour. Thank heavens it never worked. Historian Amy Shearer-Teetle, who runs the fantastic vintage space blog over at Popular Science, brings us the story of Eugen Sanger, an Austrian rocket engineer who devised a concept for a rocket plane with a flat-bottomed fuselage. With the right propulsion, in this case a rocket-powered slingshot on the runway, Sanger theorised that the plane would climb to the upper reaches of the sky, then skip across the lower levels of the atmosphere like a rock on a pond. He figured a pilot could reach any point on the globe within one hour, drop a bomb and return to a predetermined landing site. Thankfully the concept was never built. Though Sanger first envisioned its use as a passenger or cargo plane, 
he approached the Austrian government for funding in the mid-1930s by highlighting the anti-podal plane's potential as an intercontinental bomber. Unfortunately for Sanger, but fortunately for history, the liquid propulsion system the concept was built around was too unreliable for use, and his project went unfunded. Sanger continued to design experimental rockets for the Nazis, but his work was overshadowed by another Nazi rocket scientist, Werner von Braun. The latter being German-born, he looked down on the Austrian Sanger's work, and von Braun convinced the Nazi government to quit funding Sanger's work. Over at Vintage Space, you can read about how Sanger's skip-glide concept was tried by US engineers, while Joseph Stalin attempted to kidnap Sanger to work for the USSR. None of it worked out, and to this day the antipodal bomber remains a terrifyingly futuristic concept that never got off the ground. And also from the gizmodo.com website, an article by Ashley Feinberg. The government's secret plan for a military moon base. More than 50 years ago, before man had even stepped foot on the moon, the US government hatched a plan whose ambitions were exceeded only by its total unfeasibility. A secret, self-sustaining, Soviet-shamming military moon base. The delightfully extensive 1960 study, dubbed Project Horizon, was released earlier this week by the National Security Archive. And while it reads more like an alternative history than actual science at this point, it's still incredible to see just how far our Cold War-induced mania could push us. In the lengthy justification for the project, one point in particular keeps coming up. To be second to the Soviet Union in establishing an outpost on the moon would be disastrous to our nation's prestige and, in turn, to our democratic philosophy. So to save face and get a better view of its potential target in the process, the United States was determined to set up a permanent residence on the moon. Researchers knew it wouldn't be easy, of course, but that's why they planned out every last detail. The process, of course, would need to start straight away. The program to establish a lunar base must not be delayed, and the initial base design must meet military requirements. For example, the base should be designed as a permanent installation. It should be underground, it should strive to be completely self-supporting, and it should provide suitable accommodation to support extended tours of duty. The full study, though a few hundred pages long, is highly entertaining to read and thankfully easy enough for the non-rocket scientists among us to understand. But to help, here are the basics of what it would take to make it on the moon. The plan was initially to send a couple of astronauts to scope out the land and settle in. Once reinforcements arrived, construction would start as soon as possible. Since electric power would be provided soon after arrival, using a nuclear reactor, the first few space pioneers would be outfitted with a state-of-the-art space tractor, one that would cover pretty much anything you might need for your secret military moon base building needs. Needs such as moving of lunar material, 
excavation of subsurface trenches, heavy cargo handling, prime mover functions, and other mechanical work which man alone in a lunar suit cannot perform. Oh, and speaking of that nuclear reactor, they'd have to construct one themselves once they got there. While all this sounds a bit preposterous even by today's standards, the scientists conducting the study knew they weren't quite technologically capable yet, but they did believe it was just a matter of time. Based on present knowledge, the study has concluded that it is technically feasible to establish a manned moon base on the moon. Technically feasible is not meant to imply that the equipments are available or the techniques are completely known. We didn't quite have it yet, but in just a few years, we would have expected the following. Daily life. The goal was to have 12 men living and working on the moon by 1965, just five years after the study was first published. So in addition to planning out the more mechanical logistics, they also had to take the more basic realities of moon life into consideration. Providing food and water alone would be a feat. As far as rations go, each moon man would be allotted three quarts of water per day, which adds up pretty quickly. So, to stay as sustainable as possible, any extra bits of moisture in the atmosphere would be condensed, collected and used for washing, thus removing the need for an additional quantity. Plus, any extra water from urine and washing wastes could be distilled out, which if that twice-used water was deemed potable, the three quarts per man per day could be reduced or eliminated. Good luck, boys. And in addition to the typical dehydrated astronaut fare, researchers recognised that fresh salads do have moral values. Obviously they weren't expecting carrots and tomatoes to make the trip, just a simple hydroponic waste-to-nutrient converting biodome. Vegetables for salad may be provided by hydroponic culture, using wastes as nutrients, at least in part, and converting CO2 into O2 in the process, A8 with algae. Ultimately, plant wastes and algae can be used to feed poultry, which thrive in confinement and are relatively efficient energy converters, producing fresh eggs and meat. Meanwhile, attention will be given to the use of fish and other aquatic animals, such as daphnia and mollusks, which normally feed on algae. Yes, the United States Army had every intention of putting real live animals on the moon to be our friends and our food. Now, keeping in mind that we still had yet to actually touch down on the lunar surface, the spacesuits designed are really just based on some educated guesses about what it would take to function. Fortunately for Neil and Buzz, NASA dumped the ice skate idea by the time it was their turn. And if you'd like to get a look at some of these things I'm talking about, there are drawings associated with this article. Even with all the proper precautions though, moon life would be incredibly taxing, both physically and mentally. So should your physical and or mental state succumb to the pressure, a solitary confinement moon chamber would be waiting for you. Included in the medical facilities would be Isolation It would be very desirable to have an area for complete isolation of psychiatric patients and or communicable disease cases. 
Specifically, this area will be incorporated into the compartment utilised for the surgical facility and will provide for disposal of excreta, recumbency of the individual and for maximum security. In this latter instance, provisions will be made for a door with exterior locking device and a window which will automatically close if the pressure in the isolation chamber suddenly decreases. Unfortunately, the US government bit off a bit more than it could chew with this one, and all that research is now nothing more than a fun little blip on the actual timeline to space. We didn't even make it all the way there until two years after the Soviet crushing moon base was supposed to be up and running. But hey, at least we got there first. You can, and should, head over to the National Security Archive to see these plans in full, along with more recently declassified goodies. And if this is what we were planning 50 years ago, God only knows what sorts of interstellar fantasies might be cooked up as we speak. And the link to the National Security Archive is contained within this article. The next story will probably require you to make a visit to the show notes to see if you actually owned any of these things mentioned. The www.slightlywarped.com website. The most dangerous toys ever. And there's only a short comment by the author here. If you owned any of these toys as a kid, you're probably dead now. The Gilbert U-238 Atomic Energy Lab. These days people freak out about the radiation they get from their cell phones. In the 1950s, people let their kids play with uranium. The Gilbert U-238 Atomic Energy Lab included four different atomic ore samples and had an order form to get more. The kit is definitely cool but undeniably dangerous for kids. Aquadots. You'd think that a company would make sure its product is non-toxic when it's marketed for kids. For whatever reason, Spinmaster skipped that phase of testing when they made Aquadots. This fun crafting idea used small beads that would stick together when sprayed with water. The problem is that the beads contained a highly toxic chemical that was used as a date rape drug. The Easy Bake Oven The Easy Bake Oven is an obviously dangerous toy, but it's also one of the most popular of all time. The classic toy has undergone a dozen redesigns through the years, but every one of them put kids at risk of burns. The 2006 model was probably the most dangerous one, as it directly resulted in 77 children severely burning their fingers. Sky Dancers Sky Dancers were a line of toy dolls that could be launched into the air with a special device. However, these dolls tended to fly right into the faces of unsuspecting children. 
there were around 150 reported injuries, and likely many more unreported, which led to a massive recall. The Fisher-Price Power Wheels Motorcycle Power Wheels have always been an injury-prone toy, but the Fisher-Price Power Wheels motorcycle had a defect that caused serious injuries. The accelerator pedal would often get stuck, sending kids flying into walls at high speeds. It was taken off the market and recalled. Now the next one, when you look at it, is quite a classic. Jarts. Jarts might be the most infamous toy in history. These large lawn darts were heavy and sharp, which obviously led to a huge number of injuries. This toy caused 6,700 injuries and four deaths before finally being banned in 1988. The modern variant of Jarts uses a heavy, dull plastic tip. And if you do get a chance to visit the show notes and look at the picture associated with this toy, I just find it unbelievable, the sharpness and the heaviness of the tip. It's just amazing. The Wego Kite Tube The Wego Kite Tube sounds like a ton of fun until you're suddenly plummeted down to your doom. This massive inflatable tube was pulled from behind a boat to catch the wind and fly through the air. It worked really well. In fact, too well. If the boater went too fast or it was a windy day, the tube could sail up to 30 feet in the air. Two deaths and numerous injuries were reported. Austin Magic Pistol The Austin Magic Pistol is a perfect example of how toy safety has changed over the years. A literal hand cannon somehow made it into store shelves and was sold to kids in the late 1940s. This toy included a supply of calcium carbide, which explodes when mixed with water. It fired ping-pong balls out of the gun at high speeds, but it created a dangerous fireball in the process. Magnetics the Magnetic series of toys were actually a cool series of building toys that snapped together using magnets. The problem is that the magnets contained in the plastic connector pieces could easily fall out. Children could easily swallow these tiny magnets that actually snapped together in the middle of their intestines. Many young children were injured and one even died. Trampolines the toy responsible for more injuries than any other is one that most families have in their backyards. Trampoline accidents cause an estimated 100,000 injuries every year. The addition of safety nets in the past decades has only reduced injuries by about 20%. Sky Rangers Park Flyer Radio Controlled Airplanes You'd probably think that a radio-controlled airplane would be dangerous because it could hit someone. But that's not why Sky Rangers Park Flyer radio-controlled airplanes make this list. These planes tend to explode. Nearly 50 injury reports were received mentioning results like hearing loss, minor burns and eye injuries. Cabbage Patch Snack Time Kids 
Cabbage Patch dolls were mostly harmless, except for the ones that tried to devour children. The Cabbage Patch Snack Time Kids toy featured a motorised mouth that could swallow fake plastic foods. Of course, it wasn't long before kids stuck other things in the mouth, like their hair. The doll continued pulling on whatever is in its mouth, and there terrifyingly wasn't an on-off switch, which led to one girl losing almost all the hair on the back of her head. Colossal Water Balls Colossal Water Balls were a toy that expanded to many times its original size when exposed to water, and it even grew larger if exposed to the included growth powder. They were sold by Be Amazing Toys and were recalled in 2013 because the marble-like toys looked like candy. If swallowed, the ball would expand and plug up the digestive system. It's extremely dangerous because it doesn't appear on x-rays and requires surgery to remove. So if you've ever thought you've owned any of these toys and are not sure, have a look at the show notes. Some of them are quite amazing. From the scribal.com, an article by Simone Pruce. The giant salt city, 1,200 feet beneath Detroit. Detroit's salt mines are like an underground city within the city. It is a massive expanse of 1,500 acres and over 100 miles of roads right under everyone's feet. It stretches from Dearborn, located in the northwest of Detroit's metropolitan area, and known to automobile lovers as Henry Ford's birthplace, via Melvindale to Allen Park in the southwest. The Detroit Salt and Manufacturing Company operated the mine until 1983, but then falling salt prices forced the mine to stop production. In its heyday in the 1920s, 40s and 50s, the mine was open to the public with guided tours, a popular educational trip for school classes. Today the entrance to the mine at 12841 Sanders Street is only for delivery trucks and public tours have not been conducted since the 1980s. As the following images suggest, a mine visit must have been quite something. And there's a link to this article in the show notes, of course. But first things first, how did the salt get under the city of Detroit in the first place? For an answer to that question, we have to go back about 400 million years when the first humans weren't even a speck on the horizon. An area today known as the Michigan Basin was then separated from the ocean and kept sinking lower and lower into the earth. Salty ocean water kept pouring in until gradually the ocean receded, leaving the water to evaporate and huge salt deposits behind. 
Then through glacial activity, the Niagara Escarpment was formed, a basalt rock area, including the whole state of Michigan and beyond, and buried the salt layer. Today the Great Lakes rest on the basalt rock and the salt layer, some 1,200 feet below, being the largest salt deposit in the world. Some 71 trillion tonnes of unmined salt remain, according to some estimates. Fine, one might say. Salt. Big deal. It's not oil and not gold. True, but there was once a time when salt was a precious commodity, and as valuable as gold. In early China, for example, salt coins were a popular means of payment, and salt cakes served the same purpose in the Mediterranean. The Romans often paid their soldiers in salt. That's why we're still using the term salary today from Latin sal, meaning salt. When rock salt was discovered in the Detroit area in 1895, excitement was high, despite the fact that it was buried so deep below the surface. Only 11 years later, in 1906, the Detroit Salt and Manufacturing Company was ready to tackle the difficult task of digging a shaft down to the salt and went bankrupt in the process after incurring huge losses and costing the lives of many workers. In 1910, the Detroit Salt Company finally completed the 1,060-foot shaft and began working on a second salt bed under the name of the Detroit Rock Salt Company after being bought over by the Watkins Salt Company. The deeper shaft and second salt bed improved productivity and rock salt purity so that by 1914 the salt mine was producing 8,000 tonnes of rock salt each month. Wanting a piece of the salty pie, the International Salt Company had previously purchased the mine and increased productivity further by employing more men and using better equipment, including electric power, locomotives and mechanical shovels. Construction on a second shaft started in 1922 and was completed by 1925, thus further increasing capacity and decreasing the time it took to hoist the salt to the surface. As one can imagine, life was tough underground and often what went down stayed down. Donkeys brought below the ground to work usually stayed underground, where they died a no-doubt early death. All the equipment once brought down also stayed there, getting it through the narrow shaft opening, just six feet by six feet, was just too painful as it had to be taken down in pieces and assembled in the mine's workshops. Yet at least it was clean and rodent-free, as mine worker Joel Payton remembers. One reason we don't have any rats in our Detroit mine is because the rats would have nothing to eat except the leavings of our lunch pails. And by the way, not only are there no rats or cockroaches or other living creatures in our mind, but also no remains of living things from past ages. Operations went on until 1983 when falling margins and salt prices made production altogether unprofitable. The salt mine remained unused until in 1997 the Detroit Salt Company LLC purchased it. The company began salt production in the fall of 1998 and currently provides not table salt, but road de-icing salt, a sought-after product, 
considering the harsh Michigan winters. Earth is an unforgiving place. Volcanoes erupt, rivers erode, continents break up. It's a small miracle every time a millions of years old creature is found, fossilised in rock. By comparison, the moon is dead and lifeless. Astronaut prints will be preserved forever in moon dust. So it's the moon that could hold the secrets to life on ancient Earth. From the gizmodo.com, an article by Sarah Zhang. The moon might be littered with fossils from ancient Earth. In a new study, Mark Bichelle at the University of Kent in the UK looks at whether fossils from Earth could be found on the moon intact. Pieces of Mars and the moon launched by ancient space impacts have been found on Earth. Perhaps the opposite would be true as well. The bigger question, though, is whether fossils launched from Earth could even survive smashing into the Moon. To that end, the scientists needed a fake meteoroid and a gas-powered gun. Jacob Aaron describes the wonderful process for New Scientist. The team powered a rock containing fossils of diatoms, a type of algae, then mixed it with water and froze it to replicate a meteoroid. They then fired it into a bag of water using a large gas-powered gun. The force of the gun mimics what happens when a nearby impact launches a rock into orbit, and the rapid deceleration and high pressures of hitting the water simulates smacking into the moon at high speeds. The good news is that the impacts did not completely pulverise the fossils. None of them survived completely intact, but recognisable fragments were encouraging. Moon rocks brought back by lunar missions so far have not yielded any Earth fragments. But it's also true, we haven't looked that hard. We'll need to go back to the Moon to prove any of this definitively. In any case, it's certainly fascinating to think of the Moon littered with tiny bits of Earth, perfectly preserved for millions of years. An extraterrestrial archive of a bygone planet. Thanks to marine biologists around the world, we now know that the gentle giants of our oceans have a powerful and positive impact on our underwater ecosystems. From the www.wired.co.uk website, an article by Katie Collins. Whales are the engineers of our ocean ecosystems. It has been long presumed that whales are so rare that their effect on our oceans is negligible. Not so, according to new research published in the journal Frontiers in Ecology and the Environment, which has taken into account several decades of whale-related data and found that their influence can be seen in the global carbon storage and the health of commercial fisheries. 
In the past, fishermen have often taken the view that whales, which after all have massive metabolic demands, are their competition. It turns out, however, that a prevalence of whales actually encourages the development of more robust fisheries. It is estimated that the dramatic decline in whale numbers, primarily due to industrial whaling, has seen their numbers decline between 66 and 90 percent. But there are signs of recovery which could well have a dramatically positive impact on the health of ocean ecosystems overall. Future changes in the structure and function of the world's oceans can be expected with the restoration of great whale population, write the researchers in the study's abstract. Marine biologists are hoping that the recovery in whale numbers may well help to offset the effect of destabilising stresses on the ocean, including rising temperatures and acidification occurring as a result of climate change. As humpbacks, grey whales, sperm whales and other cetaceans recover from centuries of overhunting, we are beginning to see that they also play an important role in the ocean, says Joe Roman from the University of Vermont, who was one of the paper's authors. Among their many ecological roles, whales recycle nutrients and enhance primary productivity in areas where they feed. In a process known as whale pump, the creatures feed at depth, but release faecal plumes near the surface, which in turn provide nutrition for plankton. Because of the vast distances whales travel, they help to circulate and distribute nutrients only found in certain areas of the ocean more widely. Even in death they provide food for species on the ocean floor, many of which survive solely on sunken whale carcasses or whale falls, as they're more poetically known. Having been undervalued for years, it is only now that the ecological impact of the large creatures, such as a whale, has been studied and understood. The focus of much marine ecological research has been on smaller organisms, such as algae and planktonic animals, said Roman. These small organisms are essential to life in the sea, but they are not the whole story. The culture and legends of ancient Greece have a remarkably long legacy in the modern language of education, politics, philosophy, art and science. Classical references from thousands of years ago continue to appear. But what was the origin of some of these ideas? From the www.bbc.com An article by Armand Dangour How many Greek legends were really true. Was there ever really a Trojan horse? 
The story of the Trojan horse is first mentioned in Homer's Odyssey, an epic song committed to writing about 750 BC. Describing the aftermath of a war at Troy that purportedly took place around 500 years earlier. After besieging Troy, modern day Hisalik in Turkey, for 10 years without success, the Greek army encamped outside the city walls, made as if to sail home, leaving behind them a great wooden horse as an offering to the goddess Athena. The Trojans triumphantly dragged the horse within Troy, and when night fell, the Greek warriors concealed inside climbed out and destroyed the city. Archaeological evidence shows that Troy was indeed burned down. But the wooden horse is an imaginative tale, perhaps inspired by the way ancient siege engines were clothed with damp horse hides to stop them being set alight by fire arrows. Homer is one of the great poets of ancient Greek legends. Did he actually exist? Not only is the Trojan horse a colourful fiction, the existence of Homer himself has sometimes been doubted. It's generally supposed that the great epics which go under Homer's name, the Iliad and the Odyssey, were composed orally, without the aid of writing, sometime in the 8th century BC, the fruit of a tradition of oral minstrelsy stretching back for centuries. While the ancients had no doubt that Homer was a real bard who composed the monumental epics, nothing certain is known about him. All we do know is that, even if the poems were composed without writing and orally transmitted, at some stage they were written down in Greek because that is how they have survived. Was there an individual inventor of the alphabet? The date attributed to the writing down of the Homeric epics is connected to the earliest evidence for the existence of Greek script in the 8th century BC. The Greeks knew that their alphabet, later borrowed by the Romans to become the Western alphabet, was adapted from that of the Phoenicians, a Near Eastern nation whose letter sequence began Aleph Bet. The fact that the adaptation was uniform throughout Greece has suggested that there was a single adapter rather than many. Greek tradition named the adapter Palamedes, which may just mean clever man of old. Palamedes was also said to have invented counting, currency and board games. The Greek letter shapes came to differ visually from their Phoenician progenitors, with the current geometrical letter shapes credited to the 6th century mathematician Pythagoras. Did Pythagoras invent Pythagoras' theorem, or did he copy his homework from someone else? It is doubtful whether Pythagoras was really a mathematician as we understand the word. Schoolchildren still learn his so-called theorem about the square on the hypotenuse, a squared plus b squared equals c squared, but the Babylonians knew this equation centuries earlier, and there is no evidence that Pythagoras either discovered or proved it. In fact, although genuine mathematical investigations were undertaken by later Pythagoreans, the evidence suggests that Pythagoras was a mystic who believed that numbers underlie everything. He worked out, for instance, that perfect musical intervals could be expressed by simple ratios.
What made the Greeks begin using money? Was it their trade or their psyche? It may seem obvious to us that commercial imperatives would have driven the invention of money, but human beings conducted trade for millennia without coinage, and it's not certain that the first monetized economy in the world arose in ancient Greece simply in order to facilitate such transactions. The classicist Richard Seaford has argued that the invention of money emerged from deep in the Greek psyche. It is tied to notions of reciprocal exchange and obligation which pervaded their societies. It reflects philosophical distinctions between face value and intrinsic value, and it is a political instrument since the state is required to act as a guarantor of monetary value. Financial instruments and institutions, coinage, mints, contracts, banking, credit and debt were being developed in many Greek cities by the 5th century BC, with Athens at the forefront. But one state held the notion of money in deep suspicion and resisted its introduction. Sparta. How Spartan were the Spartans? The legendary Spartan lawgiver Lycurgus decreed that the Spartans should only use iron as currency, making it so cumbersome that even a small amount would have to be carried by a yoke of oxen. This story may be part of the idealization of the ancient Spartans as a warrior society dedicated to military preeminence. While classical Sparta did not mint its own coins, it used foreign silver and some Spartan leaders were notoriously prone to bribery. However, laws may have been passed to prevent Spartans importing luxuries that might threaten to undermine their hardiness. When the Athenian playboy general Alcibiades defected to Sparta during its war with Athens in the late 5th century, he adopted their meagre diet, tough training routines, coarse clothing and laconic expressions. But eventually his passion for all things Spartan extended to the king's wife, Tamir, who became pregnant. Alcibiades returned to Athens, whence he had fled eight years earlier, to avoid charges of shocking sacrilege, one of which was that he had subjected Athens' holy mysteries to mockery. What were the secrets of the Greek mystery cults? If I told you, I'd have to kill you. The secrets were fiercely guarded, and severe penalties were prescribed for anyone who divulged them, or who, like Alcibiades, were thought to have profaned them. Initiates were required to undergo initiation rites, which may have included transvestism and centred on secret objects, perhaps phalluses, and passwords being revealed. The aim was to give devotees a glimpse of the other side so that they could return to their lives blessed in the knowledge that when their turn came to die, they could ensure the survival of their soul in the underworld. Excavations have uncovered tombs containing passwords and instructions written on thinned gold sheets as an aid memoir for deceased devotees. The principal Greek mystery cults were those of Demeter, goddess of agriculture, and Dionysus, also known as Bacchus, god of wine, ecstasy, and of theatre. 
Who first made a drama out of a crisis? And how did theatres begin? In 5th century Athens, theatre was closely connected to the cult of Dionysus, in whose theatre on the southern slopes of the Acropolis, tragedies and comedies were staged at an annual festival. But the origin of theatre is a much debated issue. One tradition tells of the actor Thespis, hence Thespian, standing on a cart and playing a dramatic role for the first time around 532 BC. Another claims that drama began with ritual choruses and gradually introduced actors' parts. Aristotle supposed that the choruses of tragedy were originally ritual songs, sung and danced in Dionysus's honour, while comedy emerged out of ribald performances involving model phalluses. As a god associated with shifting roles and appearances, Dionysus seems an apt choice of the god to give rise to drama. But from the earliest extant tragedy, Aeschylus Persians of 472 BC, few surviving tragedies have anything to do with Dionysus. Comic drama was largely devoted to making fun of contemporary figures, including in several plays, most famously in Aristophanes' Clouds, the philosopher Socrates. What made Socrates think about becoming a philosopher? Socrates may have had his head in the clouds and was portrayed in Aristophanes' comedy as entertaining ideas ranging from the scientifically absurd how do you measure a flea's jump to the socially subversive I can teach anyone to win an argument even if they're in the wrong. This picture is at odds with the main sources of biographical data on Socrates, the writing of his pupils Plato and Xenophon, But the latter treat him with great respect as a moral questioner and guide, but they say almost nothing of Socrates' earlier activities. In fact, our first description of Socrates, dating to his thirties, show him as a man of action. He served in a military campaign in northern Greece in 432 BC, and during a brutal battle he saved the life of his beloved young friend Alcibiades. Subsequently, he never left Athens and spent his time trying to get his fellow Athenians to examine their own lives and thoughts. We might speculate that Socrates had toyed with science and politics in his youth until a life and death experience in battle turned him to devoting the remainder of his life to the search for wisdom and truth. As he wrote nothing himself, Our strongest image of Socrates as a philosopher comes from the dialogues of his devoted pupil Plato, whose own pupil Aristotle was tutor of Alexander, prince of Macedon. Was Alexander the Great really that great? Alexander was to become one of the greatest soldier generals the world had ever seen. According to ancient sources, however, he was physically unprepossessing. Short and stocky, he was a hard drinker with a ruddy complexion, a rasping voice and an impulsive temper, which on one occasion led him to kill his companion Cletus in a violent rage. As his years progressed, he became paranoid and megalomaniacal. However, in ten short years from the age of twenty, he forged a vast empire stretching from Egypt to India. 
Never defeated in battle, he made use of innovative siege engines every bit as effective as the fabled Trojan horse, and founded 20 cities that bore his name, including Alexandria in Egypt. His military success was little short of miraculous, and in the eyes of an ancient world devoted to warfare and conquest, it was only right to accord him the title of Great. From the www.worddetective.com Livery Dear Word Detective, I was hoping you could explain the origins of the word livery, which as far as I can tell, has nothing to do with organ meat best served grilled with onions. What it does seem to have something to do with is a place to keep and care for horses in old western towns, and even more strangely, to me, the design of the paint and branding on airplanes. Are these words the same livery? Am I right that they have nothing to do with liver? And that question was posed by Fernando. That's a great question, but you lost me with organ meat best served grilled with onions. All I could think of was Samuel Johnson's declaration... It has been a common saying of physicians in England that a cucumber should be well sliced and dressed with pepper and vinegar and then thrown out as good for nothing. Speaking as a cucumber lover, I think Johnson must have been thinking of liver. You're absolutely correct that livery has nothing to do with liver, a fact for which we should all be grateful. The origin of the word liver for the organ once considered the seat of emotions in humans is a mystery, but it may derive from ancient Indo-European roots meaning fatty or greasy. Yum. Of course, liver can also mean a person who lives, as well as being the informal name of the seabird, liverbird, that appears on the official seal of the city of Liverpool, which is, I think we can agree, a fairly appalling name for a city. The word livery entered English around 1300 from French and has been spewing out new meanings at a rabbits in Australia rate ever since. The old French source, liver, meant generally to give, deliver, and can be traced back into the liberar to free, the source of liberate and deliver. All our senses of livery in English carry some sense, albeit often diluted, of giving. One of the biggies is livery in the sense of identifying marks or colour schemes, such as your example of designs and colour schemes on aircraft. This sense developed from livery, meaning the uniforms given to the servants of nobility, etc., 
an outgrowth of livery, meaning the food given to the servants. This livery also meant the food, shelter, etc. given to horses, which is where livery stables, where food, grooming, etc. is included in the fee, got their name. A livery cab was originally a horse-drawn cab that was available to the public for hire. But today, at least in New York City, livery cab is used to mean a taxi cab that can be booked in advance and generally, as distinguished from medallion cabs, does not pick up fares on the street. Livery in the sense of uniform has gradually extended to mean simply characteristic clothing, especially of a profession. Thus a liveried butler would be dressed as Jeeves, and a soldier's livery might prominently feature of camouflage. The distinctive livery worn by servants and retainers of royalty and nobility in medieval London became emblematic of the guilds and trade associations that later developed known as livery companies, some of which survive today, albeit more as civic associations than anything else. On October 29, 1929, on what would become known as Black Tuesday, the stock market crashed. In one terrible day, the market lost $14 billion, about $188 billion in today's money, signalling the beginning of the roughly 10-year-long Great Depression, with most of the last vestiges of the downturn only ceasing around 1939, due to the onset of World War II. From the www.todayifoundout.com website, an article by Matt Blitz, The Bum Brigade. Just as the effects of an economic downturn spread from Wall Street to the farmers of rural America, another major problem arose. A severe drought struck middle America. Starting in 1931, the drought, coupled with poor farming practices, caused hellacious dust storms to envelop much of America's Midwest. Through much of the 1930s, these storms ravaged land, crops and topsoil, making it impossible for many crops to grow and the farmer to earn a living. The worst of it happened on what was supposed to be a beautiful spring Sunday. On April 14, 1935, later called Black Sunday, a dust storm darkened the sky from northern Canada to southern Texas. The next day, when reporters wrote about the incident, they made references to the Dust Bowl, including this in the Associated Press. Three little words. Rule life in the Dust Bowl of the continent, if it rains. From that moment forward, Dust Bowl was used to describe the panhandle of Texas, Oklahoma, Kansas, Colorado and parts of New Mexico. Between the dust storms, the economic downturn and a belief in a better life, many farmers and families pulled up their stakes and left the Dust Bowl. Piling into their wagons and cars, they looked west, 
much like their ancestors from a hundred years before during the California gold rush, and headed to the supposedly work-paved roads of California. With nearly 200,000 people, about one in 600 in the US, making their move, it was one of the greatest mass exoduses in American history. Many travelled via the Mother Road, Route 66, the recently constructed interstate highway that connected Chicago to Los Angeles and everything in between. To this day, Route 66 remains probably the most famous road in America. From 1931 until late 1935, Dust Bowl refugees, often derogatorily called Okies, despite the fact they weren't all from Oklahoma, poured into California, mostly into the growing metropolis of Los Angeles, that had just a couple of decades before seen a huge boost thanks to the mass exodus from San Francisco, after approximately 80% of the city was destroyed after the great San Francisco earthquake of 1906. During the Dust Bowl exodus, it was estimated at the time that nearly a thousand people per day crossed into the city's borders. But Los Angeles was also struggling due to the Depression. Jobs, thought plentiful by the migrants, were actually not. Even native Angelinos had a hard time finding work, much less with a massive number of new additions joining them. This also allowed employers to hire the desperate workers for lower wages, further angering locals. With these issues reaching ahead, the Jones-Redwine Bill was proposed in the California State Assembly in May 1935, which would prohibit all paupers, vagabonds, indigent persons and persons likely to become public charges, and all persons affected with a contagious or infectious disease from entering California until July 1, 1939. It didn't pass, but it was clear something had to be done. In the August 24, 1935 edition of the Los Angeles Herald Express, an article ran warning refugees not to come to California. The first line read, Indigent transients heading for California today were warned by H.A. Carleton, Director of the Federal Transient Service, to stay away from California. California is carrying approximately 7% of the entire national relief load, one of the heaviest of any state in the Union. A large part of this load was occasioned by thousands of penniless families from other states who have literally overrun California. Still the mass migration didn't stop. That is until someone took this task and the law into their own hands. The Los Angeles police chief at the time was James Tugun Davis, who already earned a reputation as being no-nonsense and corrupt. He was the man behind the gun squad, where he allowed select officers to take down gangsters by any means necessary, even illegally. He once said, Hold court on gunmen in the Los Angeles streets. I want them brought in dead, not alive, and will reprimand any officer who shows the least mercy to a criminal. Point being, when he wanted something done, he did it, and didn't care at all if it was against the law he had sworn to protect. Beginning in November of 1935, he sent 136 LAPD officers to 16 different California entry points, 
ones that bordered Arizona, Oregon and Nevada, with orders to turn back any incomers with no visible means of support. It was a harsh way to deal with the crisis, and one that was not legal. Davis claimed he was simply upholding California's 1933 Indigent Act, which made it illegal for an indigent, poor and needy persons to enter the state. Additionally, Davis had support from state relief agencies who couldn't deal with the influx. Many public officials, the railroads, many migrants were also entering via train, and the Los Angeles Chamber of Commerce, who feared that street beggars were a bad advertisement for Los Angeles. Even the Los Angeles Times supported Chief Davis. They compared him to Queen Elizabeth when she declared a war on bums. By December, these officers had become known as the Bum Brigade. They were given specific orders to search all incoming cars, wagons and trains. Those who had no means of support, no train ticket or were under suspicion for vagrancy were told to either leave the state or face jail time. Many chose to turn around and leave. By the middle of February, city officials finally spoke up including the Attorney General of California, Ulysses S. Webb, who said that not allowing American citizens to cross state borders was unconstitutional. California Governor Frank Merriam didn't disagree, but he knew how powerful the city of Los Angeles was. I guess Los Angeles can do it. Its city's boundaries almost go that far. April brought the ACLU lawsuits and the ending of Davis's Bum Brigade. ACLU Director Ernest Bissig said that LAPD officers were conspiring to take away the civil rights of United States citizens and that the policies enacted were a violation of the city charter and the state and federal constitutions. Other officials questioned why immense city funds were being used for this far-flung project. The officials eventually called home to LA, but Davis claimed victory. He stated that over 11,000 people were turned away, which caused an absence of a seasonal crime wave in Los Angeles. He estimated that over $4 million were saved on policing, thieves and thugs, and paying out welfare payments. In 1937, the Resettlement Administration, one of FDR's New Deal agencies, began building migrant camps along California's border to temporarily house those trying to enter the state. Eventually, the Farm Security Administration, whose job was to combat rural poverty during the Depression, took this over. This was at least a more practical, if not slightly more humane way of dealing with the migrant problem. On the 7th of December 1941, the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbour, bringing America into World War II officially, and most historians consider out of the Great Depression. Wartime production immediately took hold of the country and America began its rise into the prosperous 1950s.
The music for today's podcast came from the musicalley.com website. The bandwidth is provided by TalkShoe at www.talkshoe.com. The show notes are kept at the Origins podcast website, www.origins.info. And I'd like to thank these people for giving the podcast a donation and helping to support its production and ongoing costs. So it's thank you very much to these people. Thank you, Philip Hunsinger, Michael Ross, Ronald Kladensky and Cameron Huff. Thank you, everyone, for your support. Greatly appreciated. And before I head off this week, I'd just like to read this little email I got from Diana Wiedemann. My husband loves your shows. We just got married in March and his 30th birthday is on September the 10th. Would it be possible for you to give him a shout-out around then? I think it would really make his birthday. His name is Mike Desolitz, and we listen from Tallahassee in Florida. Thanks. Well, of course I'd love to do that, Diana, so it's a happy birthday for you, Mike. I know it's a little way off yet, but I don't produce the podcasts all that regularly due to a lot of my work commitments, so I thought I'd slip it in on this podcast because I did hear that Origins is your slightly more favourite podcast. So, for September 10th, happy birthday, Mike, and all the best to you and... Diana. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.